Well, hey, this is Rob, and that's Micaiah, and you are listening to You Forgot One. Today on You Forgot One, maybe the most important band of all time, England's own The Clash. We are talking about London Calling. Now, this is going to be a tough episode for us because this is maybe one of Micaiah's favorite albums and certainly one of his favorite bands. So, Micaiah, start us off. What do our listeners need to know about London Calling? Okay. Well, it is the third album by The Clash. First, they had their, their debut album, which came out in 1977. Uh, which was not sold in America until 1979 with a different track list, yet it became the best-selling imported album in the United States. So it was still uh, very popular, especially in uh, places like New York. And then their second album, uh, Give Them Enough Rope, came out in 1978, which uh, was kind of more straightforward rock album, uh, which uh, British punks didn't seem to like, uh, yet the American rock critics um, still were fascinated by it, uh, which brings us to 1979's London Calling, uh, which was a double album, which was, uh, you know, double albums were kind of a thing of either the past or for things like prog rock. You know, you expect it from the Beatles or Jimi Hendrix or from prog rock bands, but not really from punk rock bands. You know, the... You know, even though like the first album had like 13 or 14 tracks on it, you know, they they were really, really against kind of the excess of of the kind of rock legends like, you know, the Rolling Stones and Exile on Main Street. Yet this album kind of has a lot in common with Exile on Main Street. Um, the working title for it was The Last Testament. And the idea was that it was going to be the last great rock and roll album, the great last testament of, of rock music. And so you get a lot of different styles. You get the Vince Taylor uh, cover, brand new Cadillac, who was um, actually the inspiration for Ziggy Stardust. Um, you you get the some some jazz influence and some some blues influence. Uh, the song "Hateful" has kind of like a, a Bo Diddley kind of rhythm to it. You, you get uh, more Clash reggae. Uh, you get some influences of, of things like R and B. Uh, but, you know, to me, it's still very much a, a punk rock album, um, d- despite the fact that they're getting away from the punk rock sound. But I, I don't think punk is defined by a particular sound anyway. You know, we still think of the Ramones as a great punk rock band and punk rock album, yet they sing bubblegum songs, like bubblegum pop songs. But no one questions whether or not they're still a punk band, but they were doing that on their first album. So, you know, I still very much think this is not only a great rock album, but a great punk rock album. And other than that, I mean, I, th- I think it is a perfect album. I think we are talking about one of the top five greatest albums of all time. It's in my top five personal favorites, but I really do think of it as one of the top five best albums of all time. Maybe the best album cover of all time, potentially the best album um, opening track of all time, best title track of all time. I mean, there, there are a lot of best for me involved in London Calling. So it's very hard for me not to be biased or to, to knock it in any way because I, I think we are dealing with, with an absolutely uh, perfect album here. From, the as I said, in the 70s, 
from the only band that matters. There's something you mentioned there that I think is important for our listeners because you and I have included a number of albums that whether you call them punk or post-punk, we have included a number of albums and next season will as well have a number of albums that are very much connected to this late 70s movement, both in New York and in England. There is something interesting about The Clash, and you and I will talk about this later on in this episode with our guests. But the thing that's interesting to me is when we think about what it means to be punk, that I would argue that The Clash proved to us that punk is an ethos more than a style of music. Absolutely. So what does that mean as you think about not just a band who is recording great music, but music that matters, music that is saying something, music that is, I don't know, if, I don't know if anti-establishment is the right way of saying it, but certainly in London Calling, there is a growing movement, kind of what we would think of as Thatcherism, and they are speaking out very clearly against so much of what was happening in London, what was happening in England at the time, and yet doing so in a way that is sometimes on this album tongue-in-cheek, sometimes on this album set to quite beautiful melodic music. And so it's interesting that while there are arguments to be made for other great Clash albums, I think there is no doubt that London Calling is their masterwork. This is not a band where we have to struggle with which album of theirs we're putting on. London Calling is clearly the album yeah. for the I Clash. Mean, and, and this is a band who kind of only have five proper albums. Because then after this one, it's Sandinista in 1980 and then Combat Rock in 1982. And then there's kind of the album for some of us Clash fans, like the one we don't speak of, uh, Cut the Crap, because uh, it didn't have Mick on it, and it's, it's, it's a disaster. So admittedly, this is one of those albums where for a long, long time, with the exception of the songs that everyone's going to know. So there are Clash songs, and we'll play portions of them in this episode, that everyone's going to know. Everyone's going to know Rock the Casbah. Everyone's going to know Should I Stay or Should I Go? Everyone's going to know London Calling. Mm -hmm. My hope would be that most people know Train in Vain. There are songs by The Clash that even non-Clash fans will be familiar with. If you're, if you're fans of rock music, if you're fans of popular music, there are popular Clash songs that have done very well. And there are other Clash songs that have been sampled in hip-hop. You know, uh, Straight to Hell from Combat Rock became the sample used for Paper Planes by MIA. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, they're... Yeah, they're... You know, whether or not you know it, that you love the Clash. Or at least you're familiar with the Clash. Let's 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 at least give it that. You're 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 gonna be at least familiar with the Clash. And for a long time, that was my relationship to the Clash. And I think London Calling, because the cover of this album um became such a popular poster, every record store you've ever been in has has a London Calling poster or a copy of the album up somewhere. Um, it, it is ubiquitous if you are a vinyl collector, if you are a fan of music. And so I was admittedly probably in college before I really purchased this album and really got into it. I don't think I was fully prepared 
for all that this album has. Because I, again, like most people, familiar with London Calling, the song, not the whole album. And there was a video game that was really popular around the time that I was starting college that had Train in Vain as one of the songs in the soundtrack for the video game. Hmm. And so that became, and, and still is to this day, probably one of my two or three favorite songs by The Clash. Yeah, it's undeniable. It's, cool. it's a great song, great song. I was not prepared for how good an album like this is from start to finish, considering the only songs I knew on it were the opening and closing songs. Right. And this is a double LP album. This is two records for the price of one, which was a big deal for them. They, they mm-hmm. I mean, again, part of that punk ethos, they demanded their record label essentially take a loss in order to release this. And if you think that's a big deal, wait until we talk about Sandinista. They released London Calling, and this album is just good start to finish. There, yeah. are, there are strong points and there are weaker points, but there is nothing on London Calling where you go, yeah, that's a bad track. I think it's this, uh, I said there was the best in a, in a bunch of different categories, but the one I didn't mention was best double LP also. Mm-hmm. I think it's probably the strongest, I think it's this and Blonde on Blonde. Yeah, because I mean, I mean, for an album to be that long, you know, there are, a lot of double LPs are just like, ugh, you know, I can really do without like side three of this one or or something. You know what I mean? Like there's, but it never, never like really slows down. Never. It has no weaknesses. Well, let's talk about all of the ways that it has been appraised since its UK release in December of 79 and American release in January of 1980. Tell us a little bit about where it appears on various lists. Kind of famously, um, it was voted at the end of the 80s by Rolling Stone to be the best album of the 80s. And there's a story that's told about Rolling Stone calling up Joe Strummer and be like, oh, we're, we're calling, you know, this, you know, Lennon calling the best album of the 80s. Like, what, what do you think? And he was just like, I thought that came out in 1979, which is true. But in America, they got it in 1980 uh, in January. And then by December, they got Sandinista, the triple album. So they essentially got, Americans got five Clash LPs. albums in yeah. 1980. I mean, so, I mean, it really was the year that they took over. So according to acclaimed music, London Calling is the sixth most highly ranked record on critics list of the all-time greatest albums. Mm. So acclaimed music basically compiles all of the list of all-time greatest albums and kind of puts it in, in one and in, in what albums appear on the most. And so London Calling appears on the most lists and is the sixth most highly ranked record on critics' list of all time greatest albums. Um, in 1989, as you said, Rolling Stone ranked it, ranked it the best album of the 80s. In 1994, uh, Colin Larkin's all-time top 1,000 albums ranked it the second greatest punk album of all time. It was voted number 37 on the all-time 1,000 albums. In 1999, Q Magazine named London Calling the fourth greatest British album of all time and wrote, I love this quote, it is the best Clash album and therefore among the very best albums ever to be recorded. I dig it. The magazine later ranked it 20th on its list of the 100 greatest albums of all time. 
It has been ranked as the sixth greatest album on the 19th of the 1970s by NME, second best in a similar list by Pitchfork. In 2003, Rolling Stone ranked it number eight on their original 500 greatest albums of all time list, maintaining it at number eight in 2012, but it dropped to number 16 yeah. in the 2020 revision, but still a top 20 album on that yeah. list. Just behind Public Enemies, It Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold Us Back. That's a good one to be behind. And Public Enemy, uh, when they approached Chuck D., they, they pitched the idea of Public Enemy as saying, hey, we want to be the hip-hop equivalent of The Clash. Uh, so it, it is interesting that they sit right next to each other now on the updated Rolling Stone 500. And Enemies 500. Um, and you know, I, I expected this um, from them. Uh, on their 500 albums, they have London Calling at 39. And then never mind the bollocks, here's the Sex Pistols at 38. Uh, which is interesting. I think the I think Britain has a complicated relationship with the Clash, uh, especially by that point. Uh, just because the Clash loved America, mm-hmm. and so the fact that they they toured America and stayed in America for a long time, and then by San Denis recorded in America, I think that uh, Britain felt a little, little uh, yeah, a little bitter about that. But that, I mean, there there was the, the punk rock guard anyway. You know, when they signed to a major label, they went, "Oh, the Clash isn't punk rock anymore." You know, all, all these kinds of rules for what punk rock should be, shouldn't be, what it is, what it isn't. And the Clash never really, after 1977, matched up to what some people thought punk rock should and shouldn't be. And they said, "Well, you know, that's really not what our idea of punk rock is anyway. So we're just going to do our thing." And they certainly did that uh, throughout their entire career. I Which is a short one, by the way. Uh, we haven't even talked career. about that. But, I mean, for, talking about one of the, most, the greatest bands of all time who put out some of the greatest albums of all time, there were a few of them, and in a very short amount of time. If you're really only looking at Strummer Jones writing together, you're talking seven years. So five albums in seven years. Yeah, yeah. From album release, it's from 77 to 82. And from the time they're playing together, it's like 76 to 83. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it is a brief amount of time to just show up. I mean, just really revolutionize music. And yeah, and, I mean... It, and, and for our listeners who, again, you're used to hearing us talk about, like in our Beatles episode, we talked about here's a band that essentially releases, you know, 13 albums over over 10 years. Mm-hmm. It, but this is the thing you need to remember. Sandinista is a three LP album. London Calling is a two LP album. Right. So if you're doing it by total number of LPs, you're, you're really looking at a band that is releasing more than an LP a year mm-hmm. from the time they start playing together until essentially Mick leaves the band. Right, because... Uh... They release the the debut album, the follow up, and in 1979, they in America they get a different version of the self titled album, with like half of the track lists have changed, and also it comes with a 45 two extra songs. And in 1980, we've already talked about how in America uh, they would have gotten London Calling and Sandinista from January to December, but in there they also release uh, the Black Market Clash 10 inch. 
uh, like EP and, and still more singles like, like bank robber, uh, which became a, a huge hit in England. I mean, so they're, they're constantly releasing singles and the 10 inch records and different versions there. I mean, so like, the, I mean, there is a, a great output from that. I mean, they are, they are really working nonstop in that short period of time. And I, I guess they, I don't know, I guess they just uh, burn out. I mean, they, they had the career of a band, you know, that had been around. I mean, they basically had all the Rolling Stones career or something in a matter of seven years. Well, listener, we're going to take a break and we're going to let you hear from this week's independent record store of the week. We're going to be talking about our favorite record store in Cleveland, Ohio. And then you're going to hear from today's sponsor, And then we'll be back with our guest, the author of Stealing All Transmissions, Randall Doan. Hey listeners, I'm so excited to tell you about today's independent record store of the week. Today we are focusing on what might be the oldest independent record store in America, Cleveland, Ohio's own Record Revolution. Record Revolution has been the place to pick up your music in Cleveland, Ohio since 1967. They are located at 1832 Coventry Road in Cleveland Heights. They are available seven days a week at 216-321-7661 and we would encourage you to check out their Facebook page Record Revolution or you can reach them online at recordrevcoventry.com that's recordrevcoventry.com that for our listeners randall is the author of the book stealing all transmissions and uh, we're certainly going to talk about that in just a few minutes but um before we before we get into that you talked about the idea of having a clash ethos a punk rock ethos that that you bring to to what you do how did you get into the clash what was your entree into into the most important band um, well, that's a, a good question. I was um, in Europe, and I guess in England uh, specifically, in 1982, uh, with a touring group of the Boy Scouts of America from <laughs> uh, Stockton, California. And um, my host family, had, there were two uh, boys, and Paul was the old elder of the two, and he sent me home with a mixtape that opened with The Clash with London Calling and included all sorts of things that I had never heard on the radio growing up in Sacramento and Stockton, California, from, you know, Kid Creole and the Coconuts to Madness, the Specials, Selector, Body Snatchers, The Damned, I mean, all sorts of stuff that I just hadn't heard before. So um, as I you know, I guess grew into that. I grew out of the Boy Scouts and yeah, it wasn't long after I, I got home and sort of st- started taking, I guess, either post-punk or mod 
aesthetic and ethos that uh, it didn't really fit with the top-down order of the Boy Scouts, as you might imagine. So, so how, um, old, how old were you when you went on this trip? Uh, 13, just a few months before I turned 14. Oh, that's perfect. Yeah. yeah. So, so, so you're walking around middle school or junior high, as you called it then, with maybe the coolest mixtape that any that anyone had so you had a musical taste that was five years ahead of everyone else you were in school with i'm sure it was at least a couple years now again it this was just a few months after the release of combat rock but the singles hadn't hit the radio yet so uh yeah i mean the class were obviously international uh stars by uh that point but most of those other bands yeah they had almost zero airplay outside of you know, New York, LA, San Francisco, and a few college stations, I figure. So tell us about the relationship then to London Calling as an album, you know, because you sounds like here on the mixtape, you're, you're getting the song. And I think for a lot of us, uh, The Clash are a band with more hits than seemingly their uh, short tenure as a band would, would almost make sense. I mean, they, they released and, and produced a lot of very radio-friendly pop hits that still are still with us to this day. Um, but London Calling as a double LP is so much more than that title track. So tell us a little bit about your relationship to the album as a whole. Well, it was actually kind of a strange thing considering where we are now with um, my being the author of the first, and I think really only, American history of the class. But um, as much as I use that mixtape and Rolling Stone's, um, what, top 100 albums of the last 20 years, which came out in 87, it's kind of like my buying list. It took me a while to get to London Calling. I actually didn't pick up the whole album until I think it was the fall of 87. And that, along with the Echo and the Bunnymen EP that came out at the time with Never Stop and um, Back of Love and a few other songs. That fit perfectly on a 90-minute Max L. And I wore that thing brittle and thin. You know, that thing was just like the only cassette I've actually worn out. So, um, yeah, I listened to it all the time back in the day. And, um, and yeah, I was, it took me a while to get to Sandinista after that. So, I mean, it's kind of a you know, big, sprawling... Um, brilliant mess but um but yeah i think with for me it's always been london calling and the first album when it comes to the clash so yeah i like you i i heard the clash for the first time i was 13 and somebody gifted me the first album on cd and i mean literally just like it will i was well first i was bummed because i thought the first album had i fought the law on it well, then I didn't realize that that was, oh, that's the American release. And what I have is the UK release. And I was like, well, I'll just have to get over not, not having the, the one song that I knew. And then Jenny Jones came on. I was like, okay, this, like, it, it was weird to be in a moment where like, oh, my life is changing right now.
felt like I was doing something really bad when I heard Joe Strummer basically shout like, I hate the army and I hate the RAF. And I was like, this is insane. I was like, I was like in post 9-11 America, I was like, they're going to find it. I'm listening to this and they're going to come get me. So tell us, tell us about the impetus of writing this book. Because I mean, again, it's a unique look at this band and it is a very American look at, at this band. So, so what was, what was the impetus behind it and how did, how did that come together? And, and, and what was that process like? So Rob, my background is in sociology. I did do my graduate studies uh, in sociology and has always been on the, on the culture and music side of things. So um, when this, so my wife and I get married in the summer of 2001 and we're putting together the uh, playlist for the wedding. And of course, this is right in the height of Napster, right? And she actually teaches music. She's a music professor. And so we knew like no DJ could do what we wanted to do. It's so like, <laughs> we're going to do it ourselves, right? And so in searching um, on Napster, or maybe it was WinMX, I can't remember, I came across this track that was titled Clash, Palladium, NYC, WNEW, September 21, 1979. It was like 66 minutes long. I'm like, oh, okay. So it's a bootleg from September 79. Interesting. And I downloaded it. I listened to it a few times. And I was like, well, you know, I just love what Bill Price did as the engineer, right? I mean, he's so amazing on London Calling. And, and this was the, you know, the tour just before London Calling came out. Uh, so a lot of the same songs. And yeah, I, I'm just a, a studio music kind of guy. There aren't that many live albums that I'll listen to. But then I started, a few years went by, and I started thinking about the title of this track. I just left it, you know, on my hard drive. And I'm thinking, okay, the class are playing the Palladium, which seats 3,000, all right? And other bands, you know, of the class caliber coming to the U.S. for the first time played the bottom line, which seats 400. That's the corporate choice. That's where all the music biz people will come. So, um and in fact, there were two nights. They played back-to-back -back nights at the Palladium. So we're talking like 6,000 tickets, right? And there's this live simulcast on WNEW, which is the last freeform rock station in New York, basically. And there were two rules for freeform at that point, no punk and no disco. And so, and I also knew that that September 21st date was the date that's um, printed on the back of the London Calling album, that Paul Simonon smashed his bass, which of course ends up as the greatest rock photo of all time. And so the question becomes, who had the spot to think they could sell 6,000 tickets to see The Clash in New York when they had absolutely no support from Epic Records um, for this tour? And so I knew there had to be a good story there. And, um, and yeah, the guy, I kicked it off by contacting Richard Neer, who was uh, at WNEW at the time, and then he now does sports radio for uh, New York Giants and other stuff. And I emailed him. And then two weeks later, I emailed him again, because that was how long you let people, you know, drift without responding then. I mean, it seems like an eternity now, right? And he picked up the phone and called me like 20 minutes later. I didn't have any of my questions ready or anything. And, uh, and he just told some amazing stories and um, told me who else to call. And then things got rolling from there. So, 
Yeah, that was the, the impetus for the book. So are there any stories he told you on that call that ended up not making the book? Is there, is there anything that kind of stands out to you that you wish, I, I wish I had included that in the book? Are there any stories that you could share with us that, that maybe you just, that weren't a good fit for that book? That's a really good question. And one of the things I've been thinking about is um, the last time Joe and Mick play together just like a month before Joe dies. And I understand it's the Acton concert, if I have this correct. This is November 15th, I think. And Mick is in the audience for Joe Stormer and the Mescaleros. This, again, this is 2002. And, um, and he plays Bank Robber. And Mick just says, okay, I got to get up on stage. Okay. So they get up on stage. And I just went back and listened to the audio today. And there doesn't seem to be any real communication between Joe and Mick as to what's going to be the next song. But Joe is just shouting, key of A, key of A. And then they launch into White Riot, and then they do London's Burning. Well, that's kind of significant for Joe and Mick's relationship, as you may know, because in January of 80, just before they came back to the U.S. for the third tour, Mick decides not to go out for the encore for White Riot. He's tired of this. He thinks it's terrible that they're winding up the crowd by playing White Riot to end every show, which is sort of their standard, um, you know, standard encore tune. And he basically does a sit-down strike, and Joe punches him in the face. And he's bleeding all over the place. And so, you know, they put him back together. They get a bandana over his face so he's, you know, so the crowd doesn't know what's happened. And I think it's like halfway through the song, Mick just like tosses aside his guitar and walks off stage. And they never play White Riot again as the class. And so it's a really weird song for Joe to pick if he's just springing this on Mick. So if anybody knows whether, you know, Joe and Mick, Mick gave the okay for this song, I'd love to know. Because otherwise, it's kind of a very insistent way of saying, I'm getting the last word on this. As if Joe were pissed off about Train and Dame being the last word on London Calling, and he's exacting revenge. I mean, it seems so petty, and I don't want to accuse the dead of that, or Joe, because I adore Joe. But, um, but yeah, he is a complicated character. And as much as Mick Jones was a diva and a very difficult person to be in a band with, um, I don't think it was a walk in the park working with Joe Strummer either. So, no, they're all workaholics and make love to spliffs and yeah, they're definitely a, a very strange dynamic duo, but effective nonetheless. Yeah, I mean, amazing, amazing together. And um, you know, while Joe, I think you know, people think of this as, as Joe's band. Obviously, Mick was the one who started the band, right? Um, you know, I think if you look at the evidence, like what happens when they split, mm -hmm. right? I mean, Mick Jones drops that first big audio dynamite album with, you know, Don Letts' help. And it's absolutely brilliant. One of the best um, albums in terms of samples and just overall music conception around, mm -hmm. right? And nobody I've ever spoken with can name a single tune from Joe Strummer's debut album, Earthquake Weather, which comes out like four years later. Right. Right. And so, apart from This Is England, nothing off of Cut the Crap. 
yeah, it's that that is the one standout track. But otherwise, yeah, I think we can um, attribute a lot to yeah. Bernie muddling up that project. So, oh, for sure. Um, Which is a name that hasn't come up yet, but we might have to get into Bernie Rhodes <laughs> at some point. Um, oh, no, yeah, we'll definitely get into that when we start talking okay. about this album because this London Collins actually free of Bernie Rhodes. Well, uh, let's let's talk about you know one one more thing. I want to make sure that we cover about the book. There is such a focus on the importance of radio in this book. So w- help us understand a little bit of that, um, and especially for our listeners, many of whom, um, again, this is going to be an album that came out 10, 20 years before they were born. Mm-hmm. Help us understand, help our listeners understand the role radio played and what it meant for a band, for a a punk band to take over radio the way that The the Clash did and really open up the doors for so much music that would come after it. And not only radio, but if you could also touch on, because these kind of go hand in hand, um, rock criticism and rock journalism Mm -hmm. at the time as well, the significance of that. Well, yeah, that's a, I mean, that's definitely the the core of the book was... Mm -hmm. Um, you know, what it means to have gatekeepers, what it means to have cultural intermediaries that can help you sort out, um, you know, dare I say the wheat from the chaff, right? And um, the class had their proselytizers, especially in New York City, you know, and, um, and one of those was Wayne Forte. He's the one who contacts Caroline Kuhn ahead of time and say, hey, I want to bring the class to the U.S. And He's not going to try to own the whole country, right? They're just going to hit the big theaters. They're going to hit uh, Berkeley Community Theater and Santa Monica Auditorium. And then actually they skip Chicago and Cleveland. Cleveland's there on that first tour. So that's kind of a nice point of pride. Um, but yeah, a lot of 3,000-seat arenas and, um, and largely driven, I think, by the, the fact that there were journalists in those cities that supported the class. And I focus on New York in particular, of course. And, um, you know, there was Robert Criscow with the Village Voice, and he was a class nut. And the other thing the class had on their side at that point in New York was Bleaker Bobs. And while Epic had decided that the, the debut album was too noisy for American radio, that didn't stop Bleaker Bob from bringing all these imports over. Right. And so um, journalists and DJs and other folks were picking up stuff um, on trips to England. And of course, uh, and Bleaker Bob's was was massive in in that role. Um, And yeah, that's what I mean, Wayne Forte just called up, he, he, you know, to get the pulse of what was happening in New York. He called up Bob at Bleaker Bob's and says, class, what do you know? And he says, you know, I've sold 3,000, or what was it, something like, yeah, 1,000 import LPs and, you know, at premium prices, of course. And so Wayne knew, gosh, if there's a, you know, if Bleaker Bob can sell 1,000 LPs, then I know every single one of those people is going to come to this show and they're going to bring two or three friends. So that's in part, that was his, I guess, uh, yeah, field research or, or yeah, test marketing. Um but yeah, so the DJs, um, especially in the freeform era, you know, they could play what they wanted, right? I am what I play. That's was sort of the ethos um, 
for uh, DJs at uh, WNEW and uh, WPLGA, a little less so, um, WLIR from Long Island, and then of course WPIX, which is uh, where Meg Griffin, who's still on Sirius XM Radio, um, you know, really gets a foothold on, on what's happening. And um, yeah, it's an amazing, amazing time where, where DJs really had agency and could really shape audiences in a way that I think they just can't anymore. Everything's so, um, I'm not going to say can't. I mean, there, there have been some pretty interesting things that, that happened that people weren't predicting. But, um, but yeah, it, it was a, a magical moment for um, being on, in that part of the industry. The ice is coming, the sun's zooming in Meltdown expected, the wheat is going in Engines stop running, but I have no fear Cause London is drowning I live by the river To the imitation zone Your book also gets into the cover, right? So you've already mentioned it's the greatest, you know, photo in rock history. Everyone here agrees. Um, so, and, and I think uh, the subtitle, you know, you know, stealing all, trans- uh, all transmissions, the secret history of the clash. Um, the part of that is, you know, their success being dependent on, you know, radio and rock criticism, but also behind the photograph as well. Uh, I think we can all have a discussion about what makes this photograph so great, why we all love it so much. Uh, but, I mean, you spent like a better part of a chapter just kind of talking about the image and when it was taken. And everyone claims to have been there. You know, so, you know, you do a good bit to kind of separate like the mythology and like the legitimate like history and reality of like what's behind this image. So um, Penny Smith, which, who was pretty much the official f- photographer for The Clash, I think she and Bob Groon have probably done the best work uh, on The Clash. Um, she's along for this tour, but she's been taking so many pictures because they've been on the road for a couple of weeks and she's just standing there with her camera, wasn't planning on taking any pictures that night at the Palladium. And she's standing alongside uh, Baker, the backline roadie, with the, for the class and the show is wrapping up, but Paul looks like he's doing something funny, Penny says. And so she lifts up her camera and all of a sudden Paul is swinging his Fender Precision bass like an ax and it's shot with a wide angle lens. So it looks like it's farther away, but it's about six feet from where Penny and the baker were standing. And she's close enough right to where she has to like back up. Yeah, I think she's, they're probably moving backwards as she's snapping right. the photo. Right, and that's and, why it's it's out of focus, because she's like, oh, he's very close to me and swinging this thing. Which, by the way, for our listeners, if you don't uh, have a bass or play bass, they're large instruments. So when they come swinging, 
uh, you want to get out of the way. Yeah, and absolutely. And she certainly didn't have time to focus, right? Mm-hmm. So I think that was a, a big part of it too. Um, but there are some really um, lovely analyses online just in terms of, uh, you know, the composition in terms of where the diagonal lines fall and the lighting and everything else. And um, yeah, it's a, it's a pretty amazing photo. Um, the thing about the dating of the photo um, is that Penny then shows Joe the proof sheets about a month later and um, he, and he or she asks Joe, you know, what night did this happen? And he just, you know, blurts out the 21st of September. I mean, he doesn't know, right? He's just, I mean, I'm not going to say he's bluffing. He just doesn't want to think about it that hard. And so in the process of, of, um, of getting the book out, I end up encountering these guys online who are, who are absolutely certain this did not happen on the 21st. It happened actually on the 20th. So those were a Thursday and Friday night. And so I started cross-checking my sources. Um, as, as you know, the baker wrote the foreword uh, to the book and you know he was also thinking, yeah, how would that happen? Like if something were to be pissing Paul off, the first night, we would have fixed it the second night. We wouldn't have let that happen again. Mm-hmm. And there are all sorts of weird, um, you know, the stories have changed over the years. Some thought that the, the, that the press were occupying the front seats and they weren't standing up and cheering loud enough or that um, in a Penny Smith book, uh, Joe quips, Paul doesn't like a roto sound or something like this in part. Um, I guess that was a mixing thing. I can't, I don't remember what that means exactly. But, um, but yeah, so um, then this, this guy, Dave Marin out of New York, who was at the show, he um, ends up contacting a bunch of people. He makes it actually kind of a, a vocation of sorts of his, and he contacts people, cross checks the shirt that Joe was wearing when he's pictured with the guitar after the show and shows that that shirt was actually worn on Thursday night, not Friday night. And, um, and yeah, there's nothing on the recording, um, the uh, Guns of Bricks and Bootleg that indicates there's anything amiss at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, uh, Mick Jones has some choice words for Richard Neer just as a, from an anti-corporate perspective or something as he passes by the soundboard uh, that night. But um, yeah, not much more than that is happening at the end. So, um, you know, the date, it's not that important. It's just that given where Paul was standing on the stage and the fact that the Baker and, um, and Johnny Green set up a really tight uh, stage setup for these guys because like, they like to be close to each other um, regardless how wide the stage was that the angle to see Paul smash that base was probably visible by about I don't know I can't imagine much many more than 500 seats in the theater and that many people might have already been heading for the aisles mm-hmm. so yeah as far as the number of people who witnessed that besides Penny I don't know. Let's say the, the guys in the band also like didn't see it, right? As I like heard an interview with Mick, he was like, "I don't, like I, I kind of saw it, uh, the corner well, of my eye, but I was I was busy." Well, the blur behind the body of the base <laughs> is, um, as I think, a woman has jumped up on stage 
and a bouncer is going for her and Mick is trying to intercept and cut the bouncer off to spare her from getting roughed up or whatever right. it might be. So yeah, it's clear that Mick had his back to uh, Paul at this point. I figure Topper's um, yeah, backstage and yeah, I don't, I don't know where Joe yeah. might be as well, but I don't recall crossing any or coming across anything that suggested Joe had actually seen this himself. So yeah, it's um, it's one of those things. But so we have this iconic photograph. I mean, maybe the maybe the greatest cover photo of an album of all time. But then a design element that mm-hmm. ultimately uh, graphic designer Lowry Ray Lowry mm-hmm. yep. works works on, and essentially copies a typeface and a color design element from another famous album and and again how, how appropriate again that this is a concert a pic a photo of a concert in the u.s and now they're going to essentially overlay the the type the typeface and the design of the debut elvis presley album yeah, quite brilliant art direction on his point. And I don't know if it was uh, Cosmo Vinyl or who else said, but for them it represented, you know, the birth of rock and roll with Elvis Presley sort of, you know, showing his, uh, lifting up his guitar because he, you know, often played with his uh, left hand pretty high. And then you see sort of Paul Simonon representing the end of that era with um, the smashing of his his Fender bass. So yeah, definitely um, inspired. And, you know, I think it's, um, I think it's important that we remember how, how far rock had strayed from that, the simplicity and the beauty of that simplicity circa the seventies, right? With prog rock and I mean, yeah, I just heard the Eagles in the supermarket the other day and I had to come home and, yeah, put on the, the debut album just to cleanse myself of that on a Friday night. Um, but yeah, there, were a, there was a lot of insipid stuff on the radio. And, you know, I, I have a certain affection for that now, um, more so than, than when I was a bit younger. But still, like, that, those guys were um, making something wholly new. And I, and I do think that when you think about the 80s, obviously there's a lot of stuff happening but um, if that was a battle, I, I think punk rock won. You know, I think that the, the staying power of the music and the influence of the music is way more than the metal bands. I mean, obviously, hip hop is huge, too, if you want to um, if uh, you want to consider. I don't I just don't consider those, I guess, so um, in opposition. Mm-hmm. Right. Because right? um, that's one thing people don't think of either is how how intimate punk rock also was uh with in england the reggae and dub scene and in america uh with the with the growing hip-hop scene well the class tried i mean yeah you know um with this magical uh residency at bonds in may june 81 and joe and mick especially are crazy hip-hop fans and they put Oh my gosh, the list of, I mean, the Treacherous Three, Grandmaster Flash, um, ESG. Sure I mean, even. Oh yeah, I mean, it was crazy. And, um, but you know, those, 
the, the fans weren't ready for that. And so I can't remember which band it was, if it was Grandmaster Flash or, or Sugar Hill Gang, but people started to boo them. And Joe like came running out on stage and, you know, corrected that, yeah. which is very similar to what happened when uh, I think it was the Stranglers and they were having Steel Pulse or Black Uhuru open up for them. Um, so yeah, there, there is that, that fun, dare I say, rebel solidarity yeah. uh, between hip hop and punk in the U.S. mostly, although again, it's um, I'd say it's probably more uh, U.K. punks and hip hop than uh, U.S. punks. love about the clash and and has been part of our conversation around this band and and maybe in in my mind the greatest lingering influence of the clash is the clash really helps us to see that punk is not a genre that that punk really is an approach punk is an ethos and we even see that again the so you think about the tour that the clash is on when the photo is taken for for this for this cover, mm-hmm. you know they are touring essentially with blues artists. They they are touring consistently with R and B artists. They are they are you know going out of the way to make it very very intentional that they are bringing in a very different style of music, and and again recognizing that. Punk is an ethos, not a genre. It is it is an approach, not a genre. And at this time, you know, three years into, you know, 76 and 77, the the, the British side of, of the punk movement and the American side of the punk movement, to be a band, whether that's coming from Joe directly or coming from the band as a whole, to be a band that is kind of planting the flag and saying, this is what it is to be punk. And on London Calling, maybe the most, uh, certainly the the most successful punk album of that four or five year period in terms of sales is not, I mean, it is, is a genre defying album. There are so many different styles of music on this album. So talk to us a little bit about that idea that what it means for punk in a, in a punk aesthetic, a punk ethos to move beyond genre. Well, that's, that is a rare, really good question. I think that, you know, we saw what happened with the Ramones, right? I mean, I think because of Johnny, perhaps, I mean, it seems fair to uh, lay this at his, his responsibility, but they didn't really grow that much, right? The Ramones stayed the Ramones. And, um, you know, 
I think Joe and Mick, especially, and um, Paul, perhaps a little bit, and Topper's along for the ride. I mean, these guys were sharks, man. They just had to keep moving. They had to keep doing something different. And and they had the talent to do it, right? I mean, I think Joe, um, you know, lyrically, and um, I think just on the agitprop side with, with Paul's help, um, and then Mick, just in terms of the musical knowledge, and um, and his curiosity was profound too. I mean, again, he was the one who really, I think, brought the hip hop aesthetic to um, to the clash. And then, yeah, the mix is there, right? With Bernie having been, you know, given his walking papers, they're on their own in um, in rehearsal rehearsals, and and then they get into the studio with the nutty guy Stevens, right? For his his own, um, dare I say, yeah, swan song. And, um, you know, I some people like to, uh, I guess, take a little bit of the credit away from Guy Stevens and say that, you know, he didn't have that much of an influence. He was mostly a distraction. But I mean, I think of it like, you know, almost like a sports coach. And I'm thinking about, you know, London's Chelsea club this year, right? They're suffering under Frank Lampart and they're looking terrible. And then Tommy Tuchel takes over and they roll off like 12 games with maybe one loss, right? A coach can make the difference. And, um, you know, the legend has it that uh, when they did their first track and, um and Guy Stevens says, that's it. That's great. That's a take. And Topper says, no, no, no. We sped up at the end. And he's like, ah, it's fine. All rock and roll speeds up. And so it really freed them from the work they had done under Sandy Perlman, who was a real taskmaster uh, on the previous album, um, to do kind of what, you know, what they wanted to do. And so there was, you know, they, they had were on their own. So I think that made a big difference. And then with guys helping, of course, Bill Price um, on the decks, I mean, it was amazing. And Mick obviously had a big role there too. And he was, I mean, he was so fastidious in terms of like taking recordings home every single night and listening to them and figuring out what he wanted to do to improve them. I mean, it was, it's, yeah, it's just an absolutely just I don't want to say sprawling. But I mean, it's the tightest 66 minutes on vinyl, right? I mean, it's just so amazing. And you, you mentioned it earlier, Rob, like you think about, you know, the eight sides of the first three albums, toss on another six for the next album. And like you're up to 16 sides over the course of six years. And you're just like, okay, who did it better? I mean, it's, it's almost hard for me to think about London Calling tracks because it, it's just mm. blends together so brilliantly. You know, and it's, um, yeah, I, I still just like, okay, pull it up on Spotify and, and boom, I'll, you know, I'm, I'm not pressing shuffle. I'm not just grabbing a track or two. I just like go on to track three or four if I'm not up for London Calling and then just press play and let it roll. It flows incredibly well together. And in a way that you're not expecting a 19-track album to do so, in, in one, again, that is that diverse in terms of its influence and in terms of all the different genres you kind of hear creeping in through all these different songs. And it just there is, there is a cohesion, an unexpected cohesion to this album that 
for as diverse of an album as it is, I think it's hard to uh, really communicate to people how just how impressive a feat that is. But Micaiah, as someone who you know listens to this album on on vinyl, mm-hmm. how does it flow together across the four sides? Uh, perfectly. I mean, you're not you're you're not going to get a bad word about this album from me. Um, but but this this comes back to something that we've been kind of touching on. Uh, that I want to say explicitly about just like the genius of Mick Jones, because the way this album is sequenced is because of Mick Jones. I mean, this is something he worked really hard to try and figure out. And they released recently uh, something called the the London Calling Scrapbook, uh, which costs a lot of money and only has one CD. Um, you would think it would also come with the vanilla tapes, which it does not. Uh, it's just, but anyway. Uh, but it, it has a lot of great handwritten notes from from Joe and from Mick. Uh, you know, Joe's, a lot of his handwritten lyrics and a lot of Mick um, just, like, sequencing the album. You know, there's a lot of notes, him, like, working really hard. It's like, how do I make, like, all these songs work together this well? Um, and another thing, you know, the way that the, their dynamic works, I just want to get this out there really quick, is that uh, for the most part, and there are exceptions to this, but Mick wrote the music and for the most part, and Joe wrote the lyrics. That's kind of how the relationship worked. Mick obviously wrote things like Stay Free and, and Jeannie Jones, uh, but for the most part, that, that was the dynamic. So, I mean, you really can't separate those two. I think Joe's death kind of led to the sanctification of him. And I think that maybe when Mick dies, uh, he, he may get the same treatment. As us looking back and be like, no, he was the genius behind the clash. But the reason why the album works the way it does, sequence wise, is because of Mick and because um, his kind of LP consciousness and mm-hmm. double LP consciousness. So, you know, ma- making a great album, making this a, a work of art. He went to art school. You know, he, that's, that's, that's the other thing about these, these punks is like Paul went to art school, he, w- he was painting. Uh, you know, he, he was still he was is, an artist, yeah. and he still is, yeah. And so, you know, these these guys are artists. He, yeah, he he wasn't a bassist when they picked him up. He was uh, a fashionable painter who Mick taught to play the bass. You know, so you know they're they're they're, they're very into aesthetics and and that kind of stuff, and and that's why it works. And on vinyl, it's great. You know, it's fun as a music listener to look at a double p like okay like what's my favorite side which side works the best which side can can get the boot whatever you're like man just like each side and it's it's brilliantly sequenced too because it's uh disc one five songs on each side disc two four songs on each side with the little treat mm-hmm. at the end with train and vein i think that's very intentional that, that, that's a very easy way to consume you know a, a large record like that Songs in Andalusia There's tune inside In the days of 39 Oh please leave The vendetta open Federico Locker Dead and gone Bullet holes in the cemetery wall The black car The Johnny of the beer Spanish bombs on the Costa Rica I'm dying in on the DC 10 tonight Spanish bombs You have to get a infinito what is it about London Calling that 
that even for a band that is this talented and this successful and does so many things so well, what is it about London Calling that sets it apart? Because this is their masterwork. I mean, this, this, is, this is a peak that stands head and shoulders above anything else they do. So what is it about this album that, that makes it so unique, so different, so just so much better than what's around it? Well, that's, um, I think we have to start with Topper Heaton. I mean, they have one of the best drummers in rock and roll at that point, you know, and he's in his prime. He's absolutely amazing. They can throw anything at him and he's going to hold it down. And, um, and, you know, like just the confidence that Guy Stevens gave Paul Simonon, I think cannot be underestimated because Paul was the prankster, right? He was the joker. And so I think he, um, you know, he really thrived in those sessions as a result. And I also think that being on their own, they didn't have someone to sort of, I guess, rebel against, right? It was like, you, you guys are on your own you know, what, what are you made of? Right. And that's what Strummer talks about, like, you know, it's, it's the, the opportunity for us to really show our metal and they did. Um, and, you know, they picked fantastic songs to cover. I mean, who else has the guts to put the second track of an album as a cover? I mean, my goodness. Right. And, um, and in the United States, people aren't going to get it. I think, you know, Vince Taylor, um, much bigger in in the UK, um, and he is the inspiration for Ziggy Stardust, as as you guys may know, um, and uh, and then of course you know the reggae stuff. I mean, it's a it's a totally amazing move in terms of like, yeah, this is going to be an amazing work of art, but we're not afraid to show our roots in this regard, right? I mean, the Beatles did they cover anything after um, Beatles for Sale? Right? I think it was all original tunes, basically, um, from then on. And they sort of set the standard. And, and the Stones rejected that and by saying, no, 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 we're, you know, we're the bad boys of rock and roll. We're going to keep showing our roots by doing like, you know, one cover, an album, or what have you. But back to uh, The Clash. Yeah, it was, um, I mean, it was, again, it was a hell of a team on, on both sides of the, of the glass. You've got Bill Price, one of the best engineers in the business at that, at that point, um, you know, he's the guy who puts together Nevermind the Bollocks among so many other albums. And, he, you know, somehow the team is there to keep Guy Stevens nearly under control, right? Yeah, they lost a piano because he poured a bottle of wine on it. But, you know, that's a small price to pay uh, for an album like London Calling. Um, a Steinway and, piano, not just any piano. It was, <laughs> that's right. It was a nice piano. For Joe, I'm I'm just thinking about his relationship with Bernie, which was a really complicated one, and I'm not sure I have I have much insight on yeah. that relationship. But um, yeah, you know, Guy Stevens throws what the biography of Montgomery Clift at him and says, "Okay, write a song," right? And so all of a sudden, it's he's freed of Bernie's edict of write about stuff that matters. Right? It's like. Who cares about Montgomery Clift at this point, right? It's just a fun thing to do. And you can hear that like on every song, how much fun they're having together. And even on Guns of Brixton, which is perhaps, you know, the darkest tune 
on the album. When they kick at your front door, how you gonna come? Put your hands on your head, on the trigger of your gun. When the law break in, how you gonna go? Shut down on the pavement, or waiting in death pool. You can crush us, you can bruise us, but you'll have to answer to. When you listen to mixed guitar effects, it sounds like he's like uncoiling a super loud spring, right? There's like doing, doing over and over again. He's like, oh my God, that's just amazing, <laughs> you know? And there's, you know, they did lots of found sound. There was a seagull's cry and Velcro tearing mixed up in, into it. So it's, um, yeah, they... Uh, I mean, definitely greater than the sum of their parts. Um, and when you listen to that, and then you listen to something like um, the Trick or Treat bootleg from 81, um, that's from the uh, one of the Bond shows. I mean, it's just unbelievable how on top of their game mm -hmm. they are. I, I went on a little bit about the genius of make, but I, 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 we, I should talk about Joe a little bit and more about this this clash ethos because it, even if the clash were successful and making money off their records and their shows uh they weren't great with it uh, but even with their shows they weren't really great at that either because uh, especially early in their career uh, they had a very they very much had like a backstage door is open policy right if there were young punks young kids who couldn't afford to come into the show uh, they were sneaking them in through the back door a lot and through the windows. There are numerous stories of Joe literally giving the shirt off of his back, you know, wringing out all the sweat and then giving them his shirt or his vest or anything. I mean, so, I mean, there's uh, a great generosity, you know, and it, during a time when it's, it's all about rock stars, great big rock stars and and this this was a band that was very much anti-rock star it just it was not about that or at least a rock star and that it meant you know uh living in a big mansion making millions of dollars and just uh, you know li living off of those kind of excesses of the 70s you know cer certainly they, they and that's the great tension of the band also is they wanted to be the biggest rock band in the world but they didn't want to be the the eagles or elo or whatever you know so there, that that was the tension that's probably you know ultimately i guess what a lot of people say like brought them down you know by combat and well that's where a lot of the bernie's coming back to, to bernie Rhodes is they don't have him for london calling which liberates them and they don't have him for sandinista either and they don't have a guy stevens for sandinista either uh, it, it's self-produced, but also kind of co-produced by Mikey Dredd, who doesn't get a credit, and that's right. kind of a ding against that album. They probably should have done that. I think retroactively, he has been credited. Um, and then I guess at that point, because the for England critics did not like Sandinista, and, and I think that really crushed them. Um, and I think that that really hurt them that back at home, they weren't getting the respect that they, they deserved since America loves Sandinista. And so Bernie comes back after that. And then you get Combat Rock, which was supposed to be a double LP. 
They get it oh, down to a thank single. goodness it wasn't. Yeah, um, they 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 get it down to a single, and the thing about I think where the toxicity comes in toxicity is that Bernie was very much Joe's champion, and I and again I don't, I don't know much about it either, but you know eventually there there is a rift between Joe and Mick. Well, and then you know and then eventually Joe Joe thinks that the clash can't exist without Mick and that he can still write great songs without Mick and then we get Cut the Crap and then I think Bernie plays a part of that as well because he has a really big hand and Cut the Crap oh he thinks he's Mick Jones right at that point he thinks he can just step in and, and take over so that's yeah it's a really tricky thing is 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 does Joe need somebody else on his side versus Mick I don't know um it's uh yeah it's a really tricky dynamic I mean I think you know uh, Bernie has his brilliance. I mean, I think the whole idea of the the residency at Bond is totally incredible. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, look at what actually happened, right? We have a situation where um, the con the shows, I think it's supposed to be maybe seven or eight shows with, with matinees on Saturday and Sunday, and they get oversold by double, mm-hmm. right? And so... Then the clash, they're going to be the heroes. They're okay, we're going to stay and honor every single ticket, right? Well, has anybody actually gone and looked at, you know, um, the concert records of Bond? And how many times did Bond have like 10 days in the beginning of June or let's say any other month where there were no shows scheduled, mm-hmm. right? Was this whole thing a stunt on Bernie's behalf? I wouldn't be surprised if that, that were the sounds case. Like him. I mean, yeah. that's marketing genius, right? And if anyone's interested, there there are still like uh, YouTube clips of like news reels about the chaos in the streets. Oh yeah, New York crazy. when people can't get into the Clash concert because they're over capacity. Now I have a word of caution for you. The fire marshal say last night Bonds was crowded beyond its legal capacity. So if you want to see the Clash tonight for the midnight performance, you have to have Ticketron tickets, or they won't let you in the front door. Okay, no ticket, no admission. Visit a fans of the British rock group The Clash, but tickets to their week-long stint in Manhattan oversold by Bonds Casino. Peter Bannon is standing by live now in Times Square, where fans are lining up for tonight's show. Peter? Roseanne, they've gotten in there okay. What the situation was, you take one of the hottest groups in rock today and make their only U.S. appearance with a week-long stand here in Times Square. You sell 25,000 tickets and then find out you're oversold by half. Well, again, it has been peaceful tonight. Let's take a look at it earlier with an explanation of what happened. The Clash sold 3,500 tickets each for a week of shows. Last night, although there was no problem, fire marshals determined 1,800 was a safe capacity based on the number of fire exits. The Clash decided to honor Ticketron tickets sold nationwide for the night on the ticket. For the rest, they have rescheduled another show for each overbooked night or given the folks the option of a refund. Everybody who's got a Bonds ticket has got to wait a few days. But everyone will gain will get their money back. That we promise. What is this band that's created such a fuss? Well, I'd really love to hear, you know, we, we've talked so much about it. And, and obviously this podcast is so much about lists and and, uh, you know, I think we're, we have the tendency to be of the mindset that nothing has been fully enjoyed and appraised until you've, you know, put, put in a list of, <laughs> of, of where it goes. 
Um, I would really love if we could do maybe just a top five songs from London Calling. Is that is that something we could do? Five favorite overall Clash songs. Yeah, let's do that. Let's do that. But White Man and Hammersmith Palais. I mean, that's it's Joe's favorite. It's definitely one of my favorites. Um, I got to get a song in here with uh, Mick on lead vocals. So I got Somebody Got Murdered because it's also just a fantastic nice. song. Um, Straight to Hell is one of my favorite songs by one. The Clash. And, you know, just like the constant rim shots on the mix in there with, uh, with Topper. Or maybe it was actually like a, I don't know, like a two-liter bottle of soda he was pounding on. I can't remember what the percussion was on that. Um, you know, and I'll, and I'll stick with Combat Rock. I mean, Rock of the Casbah is a fantastic tune. It's a brilliant tune. Um, and, you know, it's one of the things The Clash did better than anybody. They made music, as Robert Criscow said, you know, that is a politically effective and aesthetically effective. Mm-hmm. It's really hard. Mm-hmm. It's really hard to write a good protest song. It's hard to write a protest song that people want to dance to, you know? And write a political song that isn't, like, really preachy. Right, exactly. You know, yeah. that, that's, that's the real challenge. Yeah, and, you know, he did a little bit maybe, you know, it's subtle enough that these guys who were, you know, bombing Iraq in uh, 2001 were playing Rock the Casbah in their jets. So, I mean, it's... Yeah. yeah it's, it's, anyway, let's, let's... That was pretty heartbreaking. Yeah, that... Yeah, and, and I'll, you know I'll, that that's something that they dealt with in the beginning, though, because even with Wyatt Riot, you know, the skinhead National Front people, you know, it's like, all oh, right, white supremacy. And he's like, no, 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 you've misunderstood this song entirely. Uh, you know, so they're, you know, not, not wasn't the first time that they were misunderstood. Yeah, um, and I'll, I'll round it out with Magnificent Seven. It's not easy to pick a last one, but you know, right on. I mean, I think, Magnificent, I think Magnificent Seven is a really interesting um, bridge from Bob Dylan, Subterranean Homesick Blues, to Beck's Odelay. Do I do my top five Clash songs now? Yeah. So, well, I, I'm, you know what, Micaiah, since, since you're the bigger Clash fan of the two of us, why don't I go ahead and go and we'll, and we'll let you go last? My two favorite Clash album, two favorite Clash songs are, are on this album. And I think that for me, the, the genius of Nick, um, I, I think it stands out. So I'm actually going to say number one, Train in Vain. song followed by London Calling. Uh, White Man and Hammersmith Play. Rock the Casbah in Police on My Back. Oh, very good. Very cover. good. Yeah, that little opening riff on Train in Vain, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's totally fantastic. Yeah, just two notes. It's absolute, absolute perfection. Yeah. And live, there's just so much reverb on it. Oh, yeah. It's yeah, wonderful. <laughs> Man, Mick loved his effects pedals. Well, Mick, I mean, Mick would just, you know, wouldn't go on until he had his spliffs and then would just crank that reverb up. And and that all comes from the Jamaican and dub music, too, and all the toasting and stuff. I mean, it it all makes sense. 
All right, so my top five. Uh, I I made rules for myself. I didn't want to do... Um, at first, I was going to do just like my favorite song from the five studio albums, but then that didn't seem right. So, But I didn't want to repeat albums, though, just because I'm limiting myself to five. Otherwise, I would definitely have some of the ones that you guys are talking about. Uh, number one, London Calling is just... Okay, London Calling is just one of those amazing things. Where it's like I've heard this I, uh, countless times, and it's it's probably one of the most famous songs of all time. And for it to be that popular, and for me to have heard it so many times, it has not gotten old for me at all, not a bit. Like it is every bit as exciting as when I first heard it, like as a teenager, and that is impressive to me. Number two for me. Um, Washington Bullets mm-hmm. from Sandinista. Uh, probably the punk song with the most marimba on it. Uh, and like everyone else, uh, White Man and Hammersmith Palais. How could you not? Um, number four, uh, I kind of want to shake it up a little bit. Get a really fun one there, Bank Robber. Uh, just a good time. That I mean, that is one that it's is a fun. lot of Roll the windows down, go for a drive, play bank robber. And then number five, uh, this is kind of a tough one for Clash fans, I think. Uh, number five, I put Remote Control okay. from the first album. And it, it, for me, it's one of those things where when I hear Remote Control, it's still, every time I hear it, still, and I've listened to the song many, many times, uh, it just, it always reminds me of when I was 13. I heard this album for the first time. It's just like, I mean, you know, not, not a lot of bands, not a lot of albums, not a lot of songs, you know, have like changed, like actually changed my life. And Remote Control reminds me of listening to that album and, you know, it, you know, just really genuinely changed my life. And so I, I, I have that same kind of feeling. It's not even, it's not even nostalgia. I mean, like it is, it is, it's something beyond that, Mm -hmm. um, truthfully. Well, Randall, we want to thank you for your time. You've been so gracious with us, and I think for talking all things Clash. But we also know that, I mean, man, some of the other albums you've referenced, you oh, got, yeah. I mean, Echo and the Bunnymen, uh, the special. I mean, th- there's 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 a bunch of great music that obviously you've been connected to, and the whole theme of this podcast is really around the idea of us developing a list of what we believe are the greatest albums of all time with a very particular rule, which is that an artist can only have one album. And that was kind of (laughs) our way. That was our built-in way to not make it so that there was, you know, seven Bob Dylan albums and five Beatles albums and those three clash albums. Yeah. Yeah. You know, three clash albums, like, in in order to kind of force ourselves to think beyond just the typical albums and artists that kind of get canonized in these kind of lists. And so 
of course, the theme of the podcast is You Forgot One, and we are realizing every time we talk to a guest how many great albums we have forgotten. And so, Randall, other than London Calling, give us some of the, you know, give us some albums that you consider to be among the greatest ever made. Well, I'm going to go outside of pop for my first two. Um, you can, I mean, you talk about, you know, um, Makai, every track on uh, Sandinista, but um, Yo-Yo Ma's third go-round with the Bach cello suites, every single note is perfect. It's wow. unbelievable. It's so good. Um, You're the first to, to name that one. And You're the first to name a classical piece at all. Okay. Wow. Okay. Um, yeah, it's amazing. Even comparing like his previous take on it versus this one, you can just hear so much difference. It's and he he promises this is the last time he'll record those, uh, but it's it's good. Um, and I mean, talk about another group at the top of their game, Talonius Monk for Brilliant Corners. He's got Max Roach on drums, Art Blake on a couple tracks. Oscar Pettiford trading, you know, bass with uh, Paul Chambers on a couple tracks. Um, and then Sonny Rollins and uh, two other horn players. I mean, that, that album is just... That's a murderer's row, for sure. Um, Amy Winehouse is back to black. Oh, interesting. Dap, Dap Kings can do no wrong. She was absolutely amazing. Fantastic songwriter. So good with imagery. Um and and her connection to the specials. She was a big fan of the specials. It counts a lot for me. And I wanted to, I mean, I'll, I'll throw that out there. The specials debut album is, is a perfect album too. Love it. But on the ska side, um, I went a, against the politics and I picked English Beats, Special Beat Service. I think because of the engineering. Mm. I mean, it's produced so well. and And of course, the songwriting and the performances are great too. Um, I mean, yeah, there's just some incredible, incredible sounds and every song is a groove, uh, on that. Um, I mean, Jeanette, Sorry, Soul Salvation, of course, the, the single tracks, um, going back to your guys' discussion on Tribe Called Quest, I'd put De La Soul's Balloon Mind State right up there. I really? Think, yeah. I think Ahead I'm, of Three Feet High and Rising. I think because it's it's more complex. There's just more to sink your teeth into. Okay. On Balloon Mind State. Mm -hmm. um, really hard to pick between um, the replacements, Tim and Please to Meet Me, but I think those are brilliant too. Um, you know, uh, uh, Bob Stinson, if, if, I'm, if I'm right on, on which solos were his, on the, I, they're just ingenious guitar solos and Westerberg's fantastic. I mean, he's a songwriter at the top of his game on that album too. And I'll, I'll end by going back to jazz actually with Sonny Sherrick's Ask the Ages. If you guys haven't heard that, check it out. Sonny Sherrick, not. Ask the Ages. Sonny Sherrick, how, how do you spell his last name? S-H-A-R-R-O-C-K. He's got, um, so he's a guitarist and he's got Pharaoh Sanders on sax, Sarnett Moffat on bass okay. and uh, Elvin Jones from Coltrane's Quartet. On on the mm. drums mm -hmm. and uh, and Bill Laswell produced one of the, one of the greatest drummers. Yeah, yeah, Bill Laswell from uh, yeah Island Records fame is the producer on that, and that's that's a good one. So yeah, there's some things to sink your teeth into as well. I think those are all 
damn fun if you don't know. Um, Randall, we thank you so much for being with us. This has been a treat for us. And we want to obviously encourage our listeners uh, to, to pick up your book. And I assume that can be found wherever books are sold, Stealing All Transmissions. Is there anything else you got coming up that you're excited about that we can share with our listeners? Or where can we find you on Twitter or... Uh, Twitter's probably best, uh, at Randall Doan, R-A-N-D-A-L-D-O-A-N-E. Um, and right now I was, I'm working on a project. Um, I'm not sure if it's got legs or not, but I'll, I'll keep you guys posted if, uh, if things come together. And, um, yeah, Micaiah, Rob, thanks, thanks for having me. It's, it's been a gas and yeah, I look forward to, uh, keeping in tune with uh, what you guys are up to awesome awesome you have a good night sir all right take care guys thanks you too well is it even worth bringing up the question i mean we're we're definitely including london calling in our list And in some ways, as we've talked about in recent episodes, I think about our REM episode. Automatic for the People is the best album by this band, but it's also as much an inclusion for this incredible band as it is for the album. Mm -hmm. And for as great as London Calling is as an album, it it also gets the kind of added bonus of feeling like how could we not include this album or at least recognize this band. Mm-hmm. But either way, London Calling by The Clash is going on this list. Yeah, and we talked around the time we started this podcast, and you said something like, I mean, any list that's worth anything, you know, <laughs> or he doesn't like if London Calling is in the top 25 on any list, like that's just like a list that just doesn't have credibility. Yeah. And, 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 and that's part of it as well is, is simply going, it's not just, this is an album we both love. It's not this, this is a band that is important. Mm-hmm. It's that, look, this is, this is a 19 song double LP bookended by London calling with the exception, maybe of smells like teen spirit, the greatest opening track to an album ever. Um, I mean, there's, there's, there's maybe only two or three like legitimate contenders to take that thrown away from the clash on this album mm-hmm. and bookended by what originally was a hidden track on the album Mm-hmm. Train in Vain, which becomes the B-side to the American single of London Calling, and 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 really becomes a huge hit in its own right. And yet, this is not an album just bookended by these two hits. There is not a missed beat. There is not a. There's not a. There is not a flaw between the first note of London Calling and the last note of Train in Vain. Mm-hmm. If, if The Clash had never recorded another album, 
if the clash did not have the ethos or the influence or the aesthetic or the importance that they have as a band, if none of that was true, if it was just simply a band no one had ever heard of or seen live or had any influence on the rest of the world, if it was just a band recorded and released this 19-track album, we would still put this 19-track album on. It is that good. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm inclined to say so as well. Um, this is one... Oof, I mean, of course, now I can't remember all the albums that we've discussed so far, but this is um, one that I would say is... I mean, we've talk, I've referred to a couple albums as being like, oh, yeah, like, just this, you know, in terms of this track list, this is the most consistent strongest album but like I, I i'm willing to say like about this album this is a perfect album right this is a even like blood on the tracks where it's just kind of like oh you know this take i like this take better i can play that game and the cover is not great let's be real um but like this is just for everything that an lp can be with like a great cover and a great set of songs and like a great story to go with it and a great band to who provides it i mean just like this Every, everything about it, everything surrounding it is just absolute, for me, uh, just perfection. I mean, I, th- I, think, I think this is one of the very rare, perfect albums in the history of recorded music uh, from a band that I think is potentially the greatest band of all time. And, I, and, I'm, and I'm fine saying that, and, I, and I'll, I'll stick to that. And I, and I know that the Beatles exist. And I'm still going to say The Clash may be the greatest band of all time. And I think that this is one of the... Phew, if, if, if there are even 10 perfect albums, this is one of them. Well, listener, we are so excited to see you back next week. But in the meantime, we will leave you with what rightfully should be considered the final Clash album. And it is not Cut the Crap. It is the second album by Big Audio Dynamite where Joe Strummer reunites with Mick Jones to write about half the songs on the album, Upping Street. Here's our favorite track from that album. Good morning, sinners. No, that wasn't your radio sets on the blink again. 